I'm very excited to introduce the next guest on the Ulster Rugby Lad podcast. He's one of the biggest characters in Irish rugby, and he's released his autobiography, which is called Crossing the Line, the Flag, the Hacker, and Facing My Life. So I've read a lot of sports players' autobiographies, and this is right there up with the best of them. Um, and Willie, welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's an yeah, honour to have yeah, you, and you. how are you getting on? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, I'm uh, still turning away after you know after finishing with the academy. Um, uh, at home here now, so I'm doing a bit of work with the Rennie School every afternoon. Walking three dogs and looking after a couple of grandchildren and still had a nice so good do a bit of shopping. So we're, yeah. Keeping busy. Keeping busy. Yeah. So, as I say, I really enjoy reading the book. And um, we had a bit of a chat there before we started recording about the response. But for people listening, what has the response to the book been like? Uh, yeah, it's been, you know, from, you know, uh, I've had tremendous response from a lot of journalists, you know, north, south, east, west. Anybody who's read it, you know, and even uh, the female side of the, the, the thing, is, uh, I found it, um, yeah, the, he found it very good. And uh, I've had some great reviews from some very authors and, and people like that so yeah it's not just about rugby it, it's it's about 40% rugby and that's the way I wanted it because when Brendan asked me to do it I wanted it to be a truthful sort of um, as it were account of my sort of life as well as rugby but rugby is the, the sort of the theme through it or the, the line through it or the whatever so yeah no it's it's one of those books um for people who haven't read it yet I was reading it I was away on honeymoon and uh, took it with me and I uh, find it quite hard to put down um, because it is different to a, a typical rugby book and um, there's plenty of yourself in there as well. I think people, sometimes people, rugby players write books and it's sort of safe just to talk about the different games you've been involved in but you really give a very honest account of your life. Um, and I suppose what what sparked you to write the book in the first place and what are the, what are the main lessons or things that you want people to take away haven't read it? Well... It wasn't. It wasn't high on my priority list. It, you know, I, I thought about it one time, and, and Thomas, um, Thomas, my son, he had sort of asked me this. You know, what do you think about it? About four or five years ago, because he had met a girl who had actually helped um, with um, Sean Fitzpatrick's book, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, he and he said, like, when are you doing that? And really, my my certainly my English and my my writing would be fairly low on the agenda, even though I do like reading. Um, and I, I put it in the back burner I didn't even really think about it until I retired from uh, Ulster with the Academy and then uh, Brendan Fanning rang me and said look I'd like to do your, I'd like to do your story you've got a story here I, I think it's I think it's you know not just about rugby it's about a lot of things um, and he said look you know go and talk to your, your your family and your your siblings and you know and you know, they need to be on board. If they're not on board, don't do it. Yeah. So we went away and had a good long chat about it and uh and he said, Well what do you want to book what do you want to do this book for? And I said, Well, it's not it's not about making money because you're not gonna make any money writing a book. Um I said, Look I just like it from my grandchildren. Because yeah. uh, you know, even uh, and you know, and have it as honest as possible and that's the way I wanted it. Yeah, and it'll be something for them, I suppose, as yeah. they grow up to read yeah. and uh, get to know you better. Yeah, and I just look, it, it may be a bit of a, you know, bit of a maverick and, you know, we'll get into a few, you know, sticky uh, situations. However, 
you know, I suppose in ways I got there eventually. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I had the resilience to, to keep going and and, uh, and and overcome certain situations and not just uh, lie down, you know. Yeah, I think what you said there, you know, about being a bit of a maverick, a bit of a character. And I remember saying to you before we started recording as well that I was Sullivan at the time when you yeah. came in. I remember, uh, do you know, I'd heard your name because Ulster Ireland legend captain um, came came to Sullivan, which wasn't historically all that successful at rugby. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a big deal that you came to Sullivan. I remember speaking to like some of my dad, who obviously watched Ireland and and knew all of your exploits. And even even to us, it was amazing that you came. Now we're talking about the various people you've coached over the years and you have a knack of building relationships with players, getting to know people, earning their respect. And I want to sort of start at the end of the book. Uh, you do a really interesting thing at the end of the book where you write a letter yeah. to your younger self. Yeah. And I thought it's great. It's probably something everyone should do at some stage. And um, did you find that a really useful exercise? Yeah, well, it was something that Brendan actually uh, we discussed about. And, you know, he, because he had, he had done a fantastic job the whole day. I thought he wrote, he wrote the book very well. In fact, at the end, you know, he was with the Corona action and I was with the North Dublin action. So, um, yeah, and, and he, he, and that's why I, I would say to people, and I know that sounds a bit cliche, but read the book to the end because it, it is it's very important to, to, to get that last part. But we put all the things that we had endured throughout the book into that letter. And it's a bit about life, you know, like I know that a lot of rugby players will write their book at the time or just after they've finished. And, uh, you know, they start in the change room and they end the change room. But for me, it was more than that. And this is more than that. And it was to be an account of my my life with the people who I, you know, certainly my family, which is massively important to me. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, that was... You know, there was parts of it were fantastic because there were, um, you know, I was talking to people I hadn't talked to for 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, making, you know, making relationships again, recounting relationships and talking to people and, 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 and some very tough times, tough things that I go through as well just to, to account. Yeah, I know. I know. It might come to a couple of those things, but um, I, I think it's clear, do you know, if you write a book, do you know, having recently retired, you have a sense of perspective on everything that's happened. You, you read you read certain football books or rugby books, and as you say, it's literally the guy's still playing and has a few years left in his career that, uh, of, of actually actually playing professionally, and they're writing a book at that stage. But I, I thought it was great because you can look back in these things with a sense of perspective. Um, and in that wee letter, I just there's there's a, a bit that really um, stood out to me. And I'll just read a wee bit from it here. So this is in the letter to yourself, your younger self, rather. You will be a leader of men and a friend to those you coach. You will inspire people and earn their lifelong friendship and respect. So as I say, I've spoken to a number of guys uh, who've been coached by you over the years. They speak really highly of you and have massive respect for you. Obviously, that's something which means a lot to being a leader. So what is it about being a leader and coaching um, that brings you joy and satisfaction? I think the most important thing is I have a, a sort of a philosophy in rugby football which I, I, I try to, to engender with all the teams that I've tried to, to that I've coached um, 
it probably was influenced to me by Jimmy Davison, you know, to keep the ball alive, keep the ball up, to play the game by running the game, or running the ball more than kicking the ball, even though kicking is a massive part of the game. Keeping the ball alive in the tackle like the All Blacks, and I would have, you know, used that a lot. Um, playing both sides of rocking like the French, you know, with that bit of flair. And, and, and let the players express themselves, you know, let the players with the skills that they've been taught go out and express themselves and enjoy playing the game so that they can play after after school, after even after playing for professionally. It's you know, like so many people don't play anymore after school, so many people don't play even profess after professionally. Yeah. So it, it I was trying to I I try to uh, that is part of it, that, that sort of philosophy. The other part is to get to know the, the, the players. Not only that you have to trust and respect them, and if you trust and respect them, they will trust and respect you, but also to have, I think what a lot of coaches maybe on occasions maybe don't maybe emphasize would be the empathy part, mm -hmm. because sometimes the players need a little bit of uh, a little bit of arm around the shoulder. They need to know what they're going through. Um, you know, I've had guys when I was coaching London Irish, you know, coming in and they were in tears because they were, you know, they were, you know, the, the, the company wanted to get rid of them or whatever, or they, they weren't able to do things. So, you know, there are lies. Those are real genuine lies and you have to understand that. And uh, you know, and 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 also having a bit of crack, you know, ha you know, a lot of times I'm not so sure that maybe in the professional era they have a different crack. We had a, a crack whereby I would have had ensured that everybody sang songs after a match if you were traveling or touring. Yeah, I just I, I just feel like sometimes you, you you know I know they do it differently today because unfortunately. Even at international level, the teams come in, they play the match, they go. You know, you wouldn't have the same interaction with the opposition as much. You know, even at club level, you know, teams come up from Limerick, they, they, they play the match, they get a bite to eat, get on the bus and go again. You know, whereas, you know, when we would play for Dungannon or Ulster, we'd have been down for a couple of nights. After the match, you would, you know, go in the corner with the opposition, have a few pints, and everybody would have sang, you know, yeah. including the opposition, you know, and, you know, that, you know, Jimmy Davison would have been a great advocate of that there because it, it, it singing and having a bit of crack with people, that's really team building, that's team bonding, that's... Yeah. Um, and, uh, look, they do it different ways now, they do it differently now, so, I mean, I'm not saying it's incorrect, I'm just saying that's the way we did it, and I, I find that a tremendous... Way to get to know people, way to make relationships, way to get team spirit, that passion together, and uh, certainly that that team of the the eighties that that would have been one of the biggest factors. You know, we 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 would have had that fun, that crack, that singing, that yeah joy. Yeah, it's it's funny. Rory Best has sort of carried the mantle on uh, from the sounds of it into the British Lions and with Ulster. Yeah. He was a big fan of that philosophy of getting players together, having That's a it. big big night out, and that was a great way to mix teams. Uh, you wonder, just in the era of pro professionalism, that has been lost, as you say. Do you know people just haven't? Uh, yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I, you, it's it's just different now, and, and it's not it's it's not any it's not that we're saying that. The past was better than now. 
it, it was it's just different it's just uh, there's some different values maybe now we had certain values then maybe their their values are different um I, I i i that's just one of the mantles that i would have had you know and that was that was sort of taught to me by Stramillis, taught to me in Dungannon by the people who who were internationals, who were, you know, senior players, this is the way you behave on the pitch, and this is what you do off the pitch, this is how you behave off the pitch. And, you know, that that was the same with Ulster, you know, we this by the senior players, this is how you behave on the pitch, this is how you behave off the pitch. And that that was that was very succinct the whole way through my playing career. Yeah. And it's interesting as well to hear you say that Sometimes what players need is an arm around the shoulder. And it's somewhat at odds with, I suppose, your reputation as someone who is, someone who speaks very bluntly to people, very honest in your assessment of players. But from a man management perspective, you recognise as both a coach and a captain that you need to speak to different players differently and people respond differently to different methods. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, no no doubt about it. I know when you take the old sort of you you, you know you can coaching or you're 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 challenging players which you need to do on a lot of occasions but sometimes you're counseling which is very important as well now i had to change my approach to players because sometimes i was a problem not the players the problem so i had to get i had to to ensure that i went through a process of knowing my personality type uh, how that i could benefit myself by just taking a slightly different approach to the way I approached others. And that was part of my process going through. Um, and, and, you know, very, and I found it very successful, I found it very rewarding even to analyse people and to even analyse players and what motivated them and how they were motivated by analysing what they were. Yeah. So, and I know they do the softly, softly approach nowadays with, you know, Different ways, you know, that they, they do it and sort of in sort of the way they do it now. But the way I was put through it was it was called punch in the face stuff. You know. <laughs> and speaking of that, there's a great story at the end where there's two. I think it's at school. There's two players that are involved in a bit of a scuffle. And the way I've sorted that out was handing two pairs of boxing gloves yeah. and say, sort it out. <laughs> exactly. and, and sometimes like, I remember actually uh, two players, two two guys in Leinster who were going for the same position and uh, like it, 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 they just started fighting and started punching each other. And I said, Shea, was that fantastic? Because, you know, Leinster were, were turning the corner to be really professional but they needed that hard edge, and I was delighted to see that sort of hard edge coming through because you need you need to have that. Not you know you're not going to put something in the pitch, but you need that hard edge. You need that competitiveness. You need that aggression. Yeah. And uh, yeah, uh, like that's what the game's about as well. If you have the right attitude. Yeah, you need that aggression yeah. at the top level certainly, yeah. and uh, you know it's it's interesting um, how. You have you've had to adapt uh, your style and your, your your interactions with people, and that's that's what all sort of good coaches, managers, captains do. Um, and you, you mentioned there as well about the All Blacks. You made reference to them as sort of the benchmark. Now Ireland routinely beat the All Blacks. Now as we know, having yeah. <laughs> beaten them last week, um, not quite. As soon as we don't routinely beat them, but we're we're getting there. And um, that's I want to talk. It's it's pretty topical at the minute. 
How have you seen Ireland progress? We have the days of Joe Schmidt and before that Eddie O'Sullivan where they played quite a prescriptive uh, style. Coach would dictate exactly what the rules of each player was in the pitch. How have how have you witnessed that change? And tell us what you think of this uh, this current Irish team, uh, how it ties in with your rugby philosophy. Um, well, it just goes slightly backwards. Joe Smith certainly had a tremendous success of, for, for what he did, which was very prescriptive and very, you know, like everybody had another role in the sixth rook, never mind the first rook. Um, and, and you can't take away from the fact that, you know, it was very successful. However, it would, would have been totally completely on the other side of the way I would like to see players coach uh, or play. Um, you have to have, you know, I think this every side, there's tremendous ability within it. However, you know, I'm, I'm saying to myself, who's going to be the next 10? Because Johnny Sex is going to be there in, you know, in the, the next World Cup. Um, you know, the depth of players that we have now, I think it's exciting. It's um, it's certainly much more uh, to, amenable to the eye. In, in the last three games, it's been very successful against Japan, New Zealand, and Argentina. Um, I I think that you know that has to be better than. I, I would I, I I would love to see five Ulster players on the mm-hmm. side or six. Yeah. You know, if I'd like to see five, I'd like to see at least five players. However, we're going to be dominated, and it's not because it's not it's not we're not it's not because I disagree with it. We're going to be dominated by lots of players who are the, who are the by far the best provincial side at the moment. Well, and certainly the, the pro fourteen or whatever it is, and I pro sixteen. Yeah. So we and and they're playing that style of rugby, and it's like they've just transferred it to the Irish team. Uh, um, so I think I think this Six Nations will 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 test will test that because you've had Argentina and New Zealand in particular, maybe not Japan so much, but Japan in the sense that they've only had a couple of games or very few competitive games. But we have to temper the fact that uh, like New Zealand, which I I was found astounding. You know they played three months. And they played a test match every week for three months, and and the, you know that that has to take a toll. I mean, yeah. that's whatever way, Argentina they've been away for like four months, whatever five months. So it'll, it it the, the six nations will be even a greater gauge, uh, how this style of rugby is going to be you know tested because that's what you're basically going to do, and then going down to New Zealand. When they're fresh, yeah, you know. So I think uh, Ireland certainly need to bring a few more players through, um, you know, to get the depth right. And they need to then, you know, to to peak for the World Cup because we always seem to be very good mid World Cups time rather than you know peaking for it because you know we still haven't got the semi final. Yeah, and we've been through those. Uh, we've seen golden generations sort of come and go and yeah. we're at a stage now where in theory uh, we have really good depth and a lot of positions and you'd like to think we'd make a real stab at the next World Cup. Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you know, when you take the Brown O'Driscoll's era in that time, you know, that was a, a golden generation, you know, fantastic. Like the talent in that group was unbelievable. Like, 
O'Connells and Callahans and the Driscolls and Darcy's and you know Horgans and guys like that and Hickey's. You know they were they were all magnificent players. Um, and and again, you know maybe whatever way it was or whatever way the events were, they didn't peak for the uh, for the World Cup, which is very sad because. It, today it is now the measure, you know. It's, you know, it's such a big, such a big thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, at that juncture, there's a story that you've probably told a thousand times. Um, but some people listening, especially younger listeners, may not have actually witnessed this. Yeah. If you haven't, you can watch it on YouTube. And uh, I told you before, I warned you that we would have to talk about this because people will be expecting this story about facing down the hacker. It's in the book's title. Do you know that was yeah. one of the defining moments in your career and probably typified the type of character that you are as well? Um, stepping over the line, maybe not knowing your boundaries to some extent. Yeah. But could you tell us um, a bit more about how that came about, how you faced down the hacker, what it felt like? Well, this was Jimmy Davison's, you know, uh, idea. He was a massive in New Zealand, uh, you know, wanting to beat them. He had so much regard for them, and he thought they were the measure in the world. And you know, I would I would say they are still, uh, even though South Africa are just you know brute force and you know massive players, but their skill level and that, and he always wanted to try to get a side to beat them, and unfortunately. Uh, he didn't succeed that and uh, you know god rest his soul because he was such a fantastic guy but his um, his mantra was and that's what i picked up on and the players picked up on we were we were supposed in ways we were the mugs like to, to, to do this but and it happened actually three weeks ago and i said to, before the game to a few folk i said look when you go when you go tomorrow which was the next day when i was down in dublin uh gauge what the crowd do after the hacker and sure enough what did the crowd do? They applauded the hacker. So he had this view was well why does a, a team from somewhere in the world come do their ritual dance which there's no problem with and what did the crowd do? They actually applaud it. So immediately you're going into the game with the crowd applauding the opposition. So he said let's turn that around. So we will do our dance and we will face them and we will go towards them and we will get in their faces. Now everybody was to be right up beside me going forward and we had discussed this but uh, I think I would kind of pull a few guys along with me but yeah it was just it was just one of the without a doubt the greatest atmospheres I've ever played in my life and uh, it was I thought it was going to be you know that it was going to be an invasion of the pitch for the, the crowd beforehand. So we got them right on our side, and uh, and 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 we had a we had a very good first half against them, and you know that it did unsettle them, but it, it gave us a real impetus. But we just ran out of steam, you know, because yeah. the New Zealanders were so so much fitter than we were. Yeah, we won that psychological battle at the we start. We won the psychological game. battle, and as I said, the dance but we <laughs> lost the match. <laughs> we won the dance. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 important. But yeah, I know. I know. But uh, certainly, as you say, even I was down at the game. Uh, we down at the 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 yeah, other yeah, game yeah, there, yeah. and um, there was there was a real sense as the hacker ended, the crowd were singing the fields of Athenry, yeah. and there was a real sense. That not that we that not that the Irish fans or players didn't respect the hacker, but they're meeting the challenge. Oh yeah, and I thought that was a great re response to it, and took one step, and that, 
And it was funny actually, I said them, I said to like Debbie Arundel, sorry, I said Debbie, I was down at the match with near him and I was saying, Debbie, she was aware of done what we did, you know, back in eighty nine, we would have, we would have actually trampled over a couple of cameramen there. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, look I think it was a tremendous match, they played superbly well. Uh, and and you know if they can keep that going and if they can keep that going and uh, but they're going to be severely tested and they need to be because the World Cup is in France. France have, have prepared, started to prepare for this. You know, three four years ago, they, you know they're they're under twenties won the World Cup, and you know they're all coming through, um, and you know they're going to be one of the top sides, particularly at home on their home surface. And that'll be a massive test for Ireland to go to Paris. You know, when everything's even, you know, everybody's even. It's not end of the tour or this is everybody's going for the Six Nations. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, France look uh, look really good. The uh, uh, classic thing with French teams is that you don't know which French team will show up. It's a cliche, but yeah, we've seen it at different tournaments. Um, but yeah, so I mean, if you haven't seen that clip of Willie and, and Ireland, Willie driving the, the, the sort of uh, the guys forward towards the, the, the hack, uh, you have to watch it on YouTube. It's uh, even in your book, you talk about it being full of adrenaline, the most pumped up you've ever been. And yeah, I don't know, it was just an iconic moment or an iconic day, and I, I didn't think it would be as, as you know iconic as it was but you know there's so many people down down the ages either have have either watched it on tv or were there and you know they they just felt the goosebumps and as everybody else did and i look it was it was something i like i'm i'm so glad for jimmy davison because it was it, it actually proves the theory yeah correct yeah you know um and i want to talk i mean you you played a lot for ireland you played a lot for ulster you played in an era where rugby was absolutely brutal. Now, it's still a brutal game, somewhat controlled. There are guys that are extremely strong and athletic. But back in the day, players could get away with a lot more on the pitch. There weren't cameras everywhere. Yeah. Uh, not everything was going to be checked and cited. You weren't going to get banned necessarily after every game if you engage in the sort of the dark arts. Did a part of you love the brutal physicality and violence of rugby? Is that what attracted you to the um, game? I, well, it wasn't It wasn't just that attraction. It was more the fact that you know, if you played, if you played international rugby in those days, you had to get your, you had to get your retaliation and forces were, uh, you know, particularly against the French. I mean. Because they were brutal, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, they were brutal. Um, and but and and if you didn't get, if you didn't stamp your mark on them to very start with, you you were going to be standing on your on your posts for a lot of period of that time. Um, it 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 was it it was just maybe the physicality, you know. There wasn't anyone really that I would probably could say that I was absolutely scared of. But there was people. There was people you knew, who were, were dirty rather than like you know aggressive and hard. You know, I enjoyed playing with and you know playing with guys who were really hard, really tough guys. Um, you know, like when I played against the likes of Willie Duggan, you know, he, he was one of the hardest guys I ever played against. He was physically hard, but he was hard mentally. Um. And that that 
that was a kind of a challenge to me, you know, that, you know, to, to, to be, to be in, in that kind of way, not filthy or dirty, but to be respected because, you know, you were, you were tough, you were hard, you know, you weren't going to lie down, you were going to keep going. Um, and that, that, that was probably epitomized by the whole of that generation of players who played in the 80s for, for Ulster. Yeah, that's the greatest side I ever played with. Yeah, and who were who were the hardest players that you played with or against? Uh, well, Jimmy Jimmy McCoy was hard. Jimmy Irwin, unbelievably hard. Uh, Trevor, you know Keith Crossan, Philip Matthews, Nigel Carr, you know, you know all those guys. Stephen Stephen Smith, John McDonald, those guys were hard as nails. You know, yeah, Colin. Um, uh, uh, you know, John Rogers hard. You know, they were, they were, those guys were hard as nails. Yeah. And, and also they had, a, you know, a passion about the game. Uh, they, they, they had great skill. Uh, and the thing that we probably got the jump on both sides in that whole era was our fitness because we were literally professional with a small P because guys would have been unbelievably fit. And yeah. You would not have been on the side if you weren't fit. Yeah. You know, that was kind of ruled by us, and we set the standards, and you did your testing, and you did you you had to crack there, and you, and 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 then you had to crack. You know, yeah. we we had to crack, but you know, Jimmy Davison got rid of the guys who weren't fit enough. They just fell off the wagon. And, yeah. You know, and then these this group of guys, particularly coming from Queens, and uh, some of us coming through the the, the other ways. That's incredible. That's what I was going to ask you about in terms of you played in a, an era which is amateur and again young guys listening to this podcast or young fans rather who are listening it's hard to imagine because you see these physical specimens now um, but that's their job whereas you guys had to stay fit but you had to do it on top of other things you were um, you talk in the book about uh, Nigel Carr in particular his his fitness uh, the, the bleak test and you being right up with him, do you know the last two stand the bleak test? That obviously requires a lot of drive, determination, and motivation. Now, players, modern players, there's an incentive at the end of that. You know you're going to get a big contract. You'll play for Ireland. You'll get fees for that. You might get, do you know, enough to live on even after you finish playing. But what give you the motivation to work that hard, getting such a great physical shape? Um, to play to play for your province and country. Uh, I think it probably came from the farm. You know, it came from a farming background where you had to work hard. You know, when you did work, you had to work hard, and you had to work honestly. And you, you got paid at the end of the day after you worked, rather than you got paid at the start of the day. Um, rugby, I owe rugby everything. You know, I rugby to get around the world and meet people to have had tremendous highs and some horrific lows, but rugby has been my passport. Now, the drive probably I have, you know, I didn't pass my 11 plus, I didn't go like, you know, top school in, you know, Belfast or whatever. And you had to fight your way. And I suppose that was part of my logic. I knew that I wasn't the best player. I knew I wasn't the most gifted player. But I said to myself, well, I may not be the most gifted player or the most talented player, but I, I, I can be the, the fittest player. And then when you meet people and rivals like Nigel Carr, you say, right, well, he's in measure. How close can I get to his fitness? Because 
it was like I, I would done deep test maybe once or twice a week just to see where I'm at on them. Um, you know, I was I I would have trained every Sunday on the pitches, I would have trained every you know, every day and we weren't training rugby. I would have trained seven days a week. Yeah. Um but I was teaching all the time. So you were teaching, coaching, playing, training. And then you were going to training. Uh, and those days when I played for Gallon we had run down, we had dro- driven down twice a week and driven down on a Saturday. You know, there might have been four or five cars leaving Belfast. So the commitment there, you had to have a major commitment. And uh, and it was worth it, you know. I, I, eventually, I know Argentina held me back in, in a way. But really, at the end of the day, it, it wasn't even about that. I, 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 was, del- I was very honoured to get there, very... But it was a drive and passion that I wanted to play for Arnold. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, I mean, in the book, um, you talk about, you, you sort of knew you'd made it whenever you stood singing the, the anthem. Yeah. That was what it was all for. That was, And you didn't want to just get the one cap. As soon as you get that, you you're moving get on. You get a taste, you yeah. get a taste. And, uh, you know, it was just phenomenal. And, you know, and to have my parents there who'd gone through so much with all the sort of, um, I, you know, I despair and and sort of angst that they had during the you know, the you know the Argentina situation um you know it was great that in a way I kept I kind of rewarded them with well I, yeah, I've made it this is what I want to do and you know you're there and, and I'm here and uh, it was great for like a little small place like six mile cross to, to 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 be able to do that for you know that sort of part of the world as well yeah and you, you referenced there a couple of times the Argentinian incident I most people listening will know exactly what you, you're talking about there. Some people won't know. Could yeah. you set the scene for us and tell us a wee bit about what happened in Argentina? Because it's a crazy story, which I hadn't fully appreciated until I, I read the book and I got, I got it from the horse's mouth as such. And uh, I, I'd heard it embellished, you know, even whenever you came to Sullivan. Yeah. <laughs> there were sort of rumours about, what, what did he do back in the day? And I thought, yeah. oh, this guy's mad. But if you could, if you could tell us the uh, the true story, to well, know what happened? Well, if you read the read the book, you'll find the true story. But uh, in the bones of it, or a sort of a synopsis of it, um, we I was I, I was sort of asked to play with the penguins to go on this. It was like a barbarians group, you know. And it was from like from Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland, you know. So it was people from all so the, the, the four na- the four nations at that time. And we went to Argentina. Now we didn't. We didn't have an awful lot of uh, insight, or you know, maybe sort of recce on what Argentina was like at the particular time. I think we we just went to play rugby, and a lot of you know, it was what was we going to play rugby? Or, but when we certainly when we got there, we we didn't we didn't we didn't immerse ourselves in what it was about because it was a fascist country. And it was run by, you know, uh, it jumped a military state. But uh, we played three matches in the third game. We we played against Banco National, who Hugo Porter played for. And he was one of the greatest out halves that the world has ever seen. You know, he's a magnificent player. And um, so we beat them and we we had a great night, you know, there. And it wasn't, it was a very safe city because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't mad or anything because it was, you know, the army were running it and the Navy and, you know, the Air Force. So 
we, we were out and I, I saw a flag, which should have been down at came when the sun went down, but it was still there. So I said, right, me and Arthur, and we helped each other to get this flag. I want one from my bedroom or whatever it was, because I had a Canadian flag, and I thought it might be a nice little set to have. But and I, mean, I just literally we walked home. I remember walking home. There wasn't a panic or anything, because nobody was there in the streets. So um, so we got and got into the hotel, and the next thing was the door came through because there was six guys with machine guns there, and then it was like, um, like it was just like a like a nightmare. Yeah, you were taken down to the police station, um, and the the Davy and Frank and John Palmer came down, and I felt so bad because they they just came down because I was going down, and they said like we'll get out of you and give you some moral support, but they were just hauled in and strip searched as well and sat in the chair for 12 to 14 hours and then you know put in a cell and then we we went to jail we you know we were housed up in jails for nearly off on a month and fortunately after that they, they realized they realized that um that these guys know how to do it but initially i was told that some of the generals wanted me executed someone wanted me to do 10 years hard labor and they thought some might have some sense to say, like, uh, you've got two years, which I did get two years uh, suspended. Yeah. But then I spent three months out on the streets, as we're not on the streets. I was in city arrest, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and the Argentine people who were there and the rugby people who were there were just unbelievably kind and, you know, they were fantastic. That's the positive from it all. But then, you, yeah. but then you saw the women walking around in the, the in the, the the pink palace square you know every thursday where they'd lost their sons they'd been dropped out of the atlantic mm. so you know yeah. the, the reality and i then i immersed myself in getting to know about the country and and their history and you know what was going on and it was fairly brutal and you know the film was out at that time called the midnight express which is about something a guy in turkey which i'd seen and read the book and they asked me that I want to do Men Express, you know, down to Uruguay or whatever. And but they said if you if you're caught, we don't know you. You know, you're on your own. I said I think I'll stick around. <laughs> I think I'll stick around <laughs> and take me take me to Cummins. And my lawyer was threatened with his life every week because I, he was he was um, supporting a, a, a an English. You know, person, English, UK person. That's what they thought. They yeah. saw the passport. They, they saw the passport. passport yeah. and they didn't realise that UK was Northern Ireland as well. <laughs> so, anyway, the, you know, and, and uh, it was it was a horrific time of my life. Uh, but the, the, the good part of it is uh, Heather wrote to me and I wrote to her and I wrote three or four journals. And in the front of the book, that's some of the journals that I wrote letters. So I wrote three, four journals to her, and she wrote every week to me. So we got them back, and um, and then we, a year or so later, we, we, we tossed a coin, I literally tossed a coin, and we went into Malkins and Chichester Street, and we're still married after 38 years. Yeah, so that strengthened the, the relationship, yeah. the lost art of letter yeah. writing. Yeah, um, my uh, goodness. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, People, I suppose, over the years, I've probably asked you all about that loads of times and you sort of think, oh, it's a rugby, rugby banter, bit of, bit of a prank, late night yeah. prank. 
probably had a few drinks at the time, yeah, and and took the took the flag, and it actually ended up being such a serious thing where you were, as you say, like could have gone to prison for ten years. Generals wanted to execute you. Yeah, absolute madness. And just lucky like we weren't a year or two later because you know the Falklands War was imminent, and yeah. you know as I said to. You, Maggie Thatcher's husband, when I met her one time, I could have told your wife there was going to be a war. You know? <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, look, it was, it was, uh, and and in ways uh, it, it made me, with then going to Romania the year after, as I said a few times to people, you know, a right-wing fascist country to a communist, really tough, you know, hard regime communism, it actually made me realise how lucky I was to live where I was in Northern Ireland, even though it was in the midst of the troubles. Um, and I, I, I took a, a, a it, it gave me a greater humbling of, of the world, even though we were going through this horrific time in the, in the troubles, that we had more in common than these two, these two sectors. Yeah. Um, and certainly we had a lot more money because when I see people living in cardboard boxes here and living in squalor here in terms of it was it was it was it was very humbling to come back to Northern Ireland and say, Well I've got a house, I've got a family, I've got you know, I I've got maybe rights, mm-hmm. I've got a voice. Because most of the people on these these two sort of uh, wings and that sort of made me Think about you know politics you know to be more down the middle rather than one side or the other. Yeah. Wrong way in thinking that you know you can hope on that, you can you hope for it. There's a bit of hope there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but look, that's um, that's that probably shaped my sort of you know my sort of life through rugby, and that helped me. Rugby helped me get away. Yeah. From the as it were the parish. Yeah. Um, and away from like a small mentality, small minded mentality, you know, I see so many people who never have the opportunity to get away, mm-hmm. and they're still, and it's not their fault. They just haven't got out to see. And rugby sport helped me to see the world, to see it, yeah, a different perspective. Yeah, yeah, I'm which, sure a lot which, of people would benefit from that. Yeah, yeah and and shape yeah. and shape uh, shape my mind and views on things. Yeah, yeah, and that's something just that leads us on to a really interesting topic, and one of the big themes in in the book is that uh, it's sort of the um, how rugby, to a certain extent, can transcend sectarianism and divides in society. Yeah. Ulster rugby, I think, is a good example of of where that's possible. Now we have increasingly we have people from different backgrounds coming, even internationally, um, from both sides of the community. A lot, a lot of guys coming up from Leinster as well. And I think it's one of those sort of untold stories about Ulster Rugby. But as I say, it's really striking that you played for, in the book, I find it really striking that you played for Ireland at a particularly uh, difficult time in Northern Ireland's troubled history. Tell, tell me more about what it was like to play for Ireland when sectarian, sectarianism and division uh, was at its height in Northern Ireland. I think there was a, a, a tremendous unwritten sort of uh, view by the rugby fraternity in Ireland, not in Ulster, in Ireland. This is not going to stop us playing rugby. This is not going to. This is this year is not going to stop us. And 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 fairness, like it was like a, a seized mentality of thinking. You know, we are 
not necessarily Ulster, but we're we're going to we're gonna we're gonna get above this. We're gonna get above this. And it wasn't that we were, you know, bigger than it. We were we were gonna kinda of get over it, jump over it. And, you know, it, it like there's no doubt about it, but it, it was brutal at the time. It was it was it was funny. It was like we had such a black humour, like, you know, but um you know, you went and you went down to Limerick, and like uh, the, one of the greatest things for certainly for myself was playing for Dungannon, and our relationship that we had in Limerick was just phenomenal. It, it, you know, it was one of my favourite cities to go to, and like I know it's got a massive re- reputation, but we were treated like we were treated, and we treated the people in Limerick unbelievably well, and we were looked after unbelievably. We would sit and in in bar and and clubhouses afterwards and sing for three hours and that was in the middle of the troubles. Yeah. You know? And they they looked after us and when they came up, then we looked after them. You know, I was even talking to to folk there last weekend, um at U C D and when U C D came up on their bus and played Dungannon, Dungannon would fill their bus with beer because they were students. And you know, and that was through the troubles. Yeah. And, and and that was just fantastic. And never never once would I have heard anybody saying you're X Y Z from you know the north, because rugby was rugby was the passport. Rugby was you know it it was vital that we that we ensured that the game was was kept playing. You know e- even though this was literally a horrific time and. You know, I, I, I knew a lot of people who I lost at that time, you know, and, and uh, you know, uh, but in fairness to, to fairness to rugby, it, it actually, it, it, it sort of jumped the whole thing. It kind of got over it. It, it, it was a pathway through and it was nearly set an example of what we can do, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's so good to hear. And I think even now, like, in order to compete with, the likes of Leinster, we need to widen our player pool and reach out to both sides of the community effectively. Yeah. Rugby has been historically probably a middle class Protestant yeah, very much so. sport. And um you've but, you've been active in, in, in the in sort of trying to reach out to Gaelic games and vice versa and that will benefit both, would that be fair to say? Oh yeah, and look there's no doubt uh, seriously the the the, the, the the skill level of a Gaelic footballer, like I, I'm at the moment, I'm taking you know I'm taking first years and and and, and like I, well, I take every year, but there's a group of first years in the Rennie School this year, and there's about five or six Gaelic footballers on it, and they are unbelievable, like their skill level. And I'm not saying the other guys aren't. I'm just saying they're so far ahead. They're handling the skill level, the sidestepping, you know, their hardness, their competitiveness, and. Uh, um yes, I, I, I look I suppose there's part of me says whenever the likes of David Irwin and Jimmy McCoy and all the guys I played with Nigel Carr and these guys, we'd fifteen guys, we'd twenty guys, we'd thirty guys, all played for all played for Ulster who were Ulster men. Mm. I, I I I would love to see more like like you can pick an a Lancer team now without the New Zealanders who are all Leinster mm-hmm. and they'll compete with the best. 
So I'd love to, I'd love to see that. I'd love, and I, that's pie in the sky, I suppose. But I'd love to that we could. And as you said, we're going to have to expand our, you know, bring more guys through. We're going to have to try and get out and get more guys there. I know it's professional now, and we have to compete at the top level, and it's a money-driven thing, and it's all about results. I just like to see, you know, a lot more Ulster men playing for Ulster. I'd love to, you know, it's not against the guys who've come in and played, and some of them have played magnificently well, and some of them maybe haven't, but I would just love to see more Ulster men playing for Ulster so that I think, you know, that that we then, you know, the measure of an Ulster side is the number of guys we get on an Irish side. Yeah, yeah. And as well as getting to the top of the leagues. You know, yeah. you know, my day was how many Ulster men did you get in the Irish team because that's, that's like the measure of where you are. Yeah. Six on, then you have a good Ulster side. Yeah, I know. That's, a, that's how fans measure it yeah. as well. And every time a, an Ireland squad's released, Immediately, first I still catch myself doing it all the time. You can't many instruments there, yeah. And, and you know, and I was, I was absolutely, you know, I was gobsmacked there. You know, when I read the paper of the under eighteen schools, clubs, under nineteen squads, and there were ninety players, you know, like kids, you know, and there's twelve also men, mm. and I'm saying. That is what one and nine, one and yeah. one and nine. Yeah, and I'm 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 saying jeepers creepers. Is that is that you know what we're bringing through? You know where's our where's our full talent coming through? Yeah, yeah. That's uh, interesting because you coached obviously at the academy and you coached at Ulster A, and you saw this crop of young guys. Coming yeah, and they were fantastic. They're 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 an exceptional group. You know, in two of them got capped there last week, which yeah. is again, which is you know, second capsule, Robert and Robert Bullockian and Tom O'Toole, fantastic. And there's there's another you know wave of guys coming to can come through there, and I just like to see them all getting on. You know, get on to Ulster and and, and uh, yeah, because they they're, they're going to give everything in their whole body to to play for Ulster and to to win for Ulster. Yeah, and you can see. That that group of players who are playing for Ireland at the moment, they're playing not only, they're playing for each other because they've been playing for each other all the time. Yeah, the Leinster man. Yeah, you know, uh, and it's incredible. Yeah, and there's a couple of names you uh, you said there. Do you know, um, you had an amazing crop of young guys in, in that squad you had coming through. So you had Balakun, like Hume, Stuart yeah. Moore, Tom O'Toole, um, you know, Michael Lowry. Michael Lowry, of course, yeah. One of the, it epitomes of what I would call a complete warrior, like his size, yeah. his empathy with people, his uh, leadership, his courage. You know, he to me was what I would regard as an Ulsterman, yeah. uh, right at the pinnacle. And and uh, you know, he he set stand he set a standard of, you know, what the values were of an Ulster player. Yeah. And to me, that was very essential. Yeah. And then he's the likes of David McCann and. Callum Reid and uh, you know it is a tremendous amount of great players coming through and I, I would just like to see him get there you know yeah. it'll take him maybe another year or two get there yeah absolutely and you were part of an incredibly successful Ulster team so Ulster people probably don't realise this including myself to be honest I sort of came along 
I was hitting sort of, I was about 10 whenever Ulster won the European Cup. And I thought, this is must happen all the time. But of course, that was our sort of recent taste of, of, of success. Going back, uh, back when you were playing, it was Ulster dominated Irish interprovincial rugby for so many years. There's, there's a line in the book. No one in the world came to Ravenhill expecting to get out in one piece. I love that. That was yeah. a great line. And I thought, do you know, I wonder the people fear coming to Ravenhill now. Um, and fans think, I think fans are frustrated um, at the minute because um, we've been in this period of transition. You keep hearing yeah. that phrase used, we're in a period of transition. We're heading in the, in the right direction. I think that's the general perception of fans. Yeah. Slowly but surely. What can Ulster do, if if possible, in order to dominate interprovincial rugby and maybe sort of this United Rugby Championship? Can we win silverware, or is that something which? Uh, well, I, 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 I again, I'd, I'd like to hope that they can. However, you know the reality is, I think with the lack of funds now, with the pandemic, you know, with with the lack of funds, uh, you know, they're not going to get the same. They're not going to get the same money from the RFU to, to maybe, you know, to bring in players. Uh, I think Leinster are going to actually provide, unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, so many, their they're, they're residue, yeah. you know, they're, yeah. they're, they're, what they're not picking for their Leinster team, who are very talented players. Like you see jo- Joey Cabra playing for Munster. Now, I'm not, I'm not sure that was the best movie I had because I think he would, he would, you know, but he's playing week in, week out for Munster. Mm-hmm. So, I think we're going to see more of that. However, I'd love to see this crop of players that we that we brought through because there's nearly twenty guys there, you know, coming through and you know, right, right fans. We're going to lose matches here, but these guys are coming through, mm-hmm. and in two years' time, we will have a group of near enough Ulster men who are playing for Ulster. Yeah, I, that that no, I'm not going to tell Dan McFarlane what to do or what the crack is, but. The, the fans would nearly say, right, okay, let's back us, let's back us, young group. Yeah. But, like, at the end of the day, it's about winning trophies, it's about winning and, you mm-hmm. know, getting bums and seats and, you know, getting to the next, you know, getting into the quarterfinals of the European Cup because that's yeah. what it is. And, you know, yeah. it's unfortunate. It's, 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 a, it's a results-driven sort of profession. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But in terms of those guys you mentioned, maybe it's an unfair question to pick any anyone. But I mean, of that crop of guys, very talented youngsters, who are the ones that you see making it all the way? There's not the not the uh, sort of give you a clue to, to who I want to hear about. But you're talking about the long term successor of Johnny Sexton at ten. You mentioned Michael Lowry. Is that something that he could go on to achieve? He's playing at such a... Uh, he's sort of switching between full-back and 10 at the moment. Yeah, Is that well, something I, I would love to see him playing 10 all the time. I think yeah. you know, but again, I think he just needs to be you know, coached in terms of his depths and that sort of thing, you know, and, uh, and given the chance, right, you're going to get five games, you're going to get 10 games, you know, you're going to be playing here. Um, I think he certainly can, can go to that level, you know. It, it's a bit like the... The fullback that New Zealand have, um, uh, what do you call him? He's Blondie, wee Blondie guy. Oh, Damien McKenzie. Yeah, McKenzie, because yeah. he's about the same statue as him. So, you know, he's made it and he's, you know, he's still playing and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's coping with it. So it's not about sizes, it's, 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 it's about the, the talent. Um, Balaku, like outstanding mm-hmm. talent and can mm-hmm. go the whole way. 
James Shame as well. Um, um, I, like Tom O'Toole, I think. And Neil Duke, yeah, you know, what do you call him? I, Nathan. Yeah, Nathan. Yeah, yeah. Like Nathan is such a talented guy. And again, you know, needs to say, right, well, I need to work on it, keep working on it. Tom O'Toole, Callum Reid. Uh, Callum Reid certainly, I think, has got unbelievable talent. Yeah, know? yeah. Tom Stewart, you know, um, Dave McCann, those yeah. guys are very exceptional players. You know, yeah, it's exciting time actually for us, sir, because as we've got, we're getting to the stage now where we've got a world class Springbok coming into yeah. the team in Vermeulen, and if you combine a couple of world class you don't want journeymen I suppose coming to Ulster you want if you're going to bring guys in they need to be world class yeah and I think they set the standard they set the standard if they can set the standard and, and, and literally bring a success the success will be bringing these guys through to give us silverware yeah and I, I, I think that that can be the success yeah now whether it happens this year or next year I'm not sure I think it's going to be a transition. There's no doubt, but I would give them. I would give them a hand. I would say, yeah. right, guys, you know, uh, great. And the likes of, in fairness, the likes of Nick Timoney and um, Eric O'Sullivan, like they came up from Leicester and they had nothing. They were they were like you know literally way go lads. Yeah. And you know their drive and determination has got them where they are, and you know fair play to them. Like uh, Nick Timoney's not out of place in, in that Irish team, you know, but yeah. then you know, he's a Black Rock boy and, you know, he's, you know, yeah. like I would just like to see the likes of McCann there, you know, in another year's time. Yeah, and hopefully we'll see more of those guys, yeah. you know, um, as I say, exciting times to be an Ulster fan because you can, you can sense something's building, let's hope it materialises yeah. into, into a class squad filled largely with, with guys who've come through the system. Yeah, I think, I think because of that, you know, you, you see the, the passion that the, the Lancer guys play for, for Lancer, but you can see it, the passion that they've endured, you know, they've been, they brought to the Irish team. They're playing for each other. They know each other. They know it, you know who's playing for what. You know there's no, there's no guys. You know they're all playing for each other. They're going to play to the end. They're going to, you know, they're going to die for each other. So yeah. that's what you want to have in an in an Ulster group. You know that this group of guys coming through. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And no better man to have, have guided them through to the point they're at now. And um. The final sort of thing I want to ask you is, uh, I don't want to end on too much of a negative note, so I might ask you one, one question after this, but I want to hear about setbacks you've suffered because one of the things that it's a recurring theme in all of the interviews I've done with, with different players is that very often there is some form of setback in their career or life and they have to overcome that. Uh, if there's, sometimes you, you call it like a favorite failure of yours or a favorite setback, which has actually set you up for greater success later on. Is there anything springs to mind? Like, I, well, I think going back to my very, very early youth, you know, when I did the level plus, I feel it. I think I was a driving, you know, like I, uh, well, I'll, I'll kind of show you. I mightn't be smart, but because I, I think I suffer from dyslexia. In fact, I know it. Um, uh, that sort of said, well, I'll, you know, I'm going to find something I, I can show you that I can do it, you know, and rugby was my sort of thing. Then not getting, you know, not getting picked for Ulster schools or any of that crack, you know, and because didn't really come to my academy. Um, and then being dropped, you know, being dropped, like I was dropped f- f- five times by Ireland, 
but I, I got back again, you know, you yeah. didn't lie down. Then, you know, losing, you know, being made redundant in the rainy as a teacher, you know, getting, you know, getting sacked by Scotland, you know, these are all setbacks in your life, you, you know, mm-hmm. but you either, you either roll up and, you know, blow away or you say, right, hold on, I'm getting up here, I'm going to do something about this. Um, and I suppose, you know, you know, coming from a farm and, you know, that, you know, you, a good day's work, you know, is very important. You know, you, you don't get paid anything unless you get a good day's work done. Um, I'm being honest, you know. Yeah. I've been totally and brutally honest, you know, because sometimes, you know, everybody wants to sugarcoat it, but, you know, the reality is, you know, you're, that's where that's where it is. Yeah. I think being set back, not getting an ulcer job, but that may be determined. It's not, you know, I've you know, got over that and, you know, life goes on. And I'm very fortunate now that I have, you know, had a brilliant family. My wife's fantastic and I've got three f- fantastic kids and two fantastic uh, grandchildren. And that's, yeah, that's what part of life is about. It's something, that, something I've mentioned very much is, is your family, which is a massive theme in the book. And um, you've won, uh, I mean, You've you've three kids, uh, one of which is internationally renowned and famous, mm. and TJ as well or Thomas came through. Ulster fans will know TJ yeah. came through, played for Ulster, had a great career in rugby, and then Chloe as well. Who and you're all very proud of your your kids and all that they've accomplished. Yeah. So um, it's funny actually, you know, whenever I was growing up and playing for Ulster and all that sort of jazz, you know, and they would come along to the matches and they would be saying, somebody would be talking to them and say, "Oh, are you are you Willie Anderson's?" Cub, uh, you're Willie Anderson's Cub, you're Willie Anderson's big girl. Yeah, and now, you know, when I go to Jonathan's shows, oh, you're you're Jonathan Anderson's father. So it, it's, it's, it's gone full circle, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure you're very proud. And um, the, the last sort of question, a couple of quick fire questions. Yeah. As I say, uh, sent here before we started recording, I put this up on social media and asked for um, questions for Willie. Yeah. Uh, People, people chipped in loads of questions. Really interested in in what you have to say, and obviously you have a lot of fans and people who who respect you out there. So this one, this one is from Leslie Crimble. So she asks, would you have preferred to play in the modern era if you had the chance? Would you have preferred the amateur era with fewer laws uh, related to player welfare, or relish the more high impact but regulated modern game? Uh, a, a lot of people have asked me this question who would like to be a professional uh, I think everybody would like to be a professional I think uh, when we were playing in the 80s we were literally like professionals we trained like professionals we didn't get paid for it I, 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 just, I don't think you can compare it's not the same I, of course I'd love to have played in this zone and you know I'd love to have the same time playing you know because we only played to start whenever we played for Ulster we only played five games a year mm. we yeah. were lucky to play five games a year really yeah so you know and then we had ten games a year and you know like I played near enough 13 years for Ulster so in those times um, I enjoyed I, I enjoyed the time that I had because we had a balance mm. we had a great balance we had a balance of work we had a balance of rugby and we, we kept a lot of things in perspective and we weren't in a bubble of professionalism which maybe made us more balanced people. I'm not saying the people who are in rugby now are not balanced. I'm just saying 
we we had to fit it in. We had to fit our work into rugby and we had to fit rugby into our work. Um, and uh, yeah, I'd love to be a professional, but you know, unfortunately, I wasn't. Yeah, yeah, but had a great time through rugby and I, a great career I as well. I could you know, as I say at the very start of this interview, I owe rugby so much to what yeah. what I am today and, and and that's why I probably from those values like to hand them down to other generations of kids or players because the what rugby's done for me or helped me with and yeah. what I've got from rugby. Is you know it's fantastic. Yeah, and the final final question is, um, who a uh, couple of things combined? Who's the best player that you've played with, and who's the best player that you've coached? Uh, the best player I played with was Serge Blanco. Absolute barbarians, like he was phenomenal. Um, and for Ulster, Keith Cross, and he was my favorite player. Because he, he again was like a, a mega Larry, but he was so hard, so tough, and he had great feet. And there's nobody, no matter who, what size it was, would have come past him. He was a yeah. brilliant tackler. I can never say that I coached. Um, I I was there when I was when um, Brian O'Driscoll was in Leinster. I I, I you cannot say, and nobody can say they coached Brian O'Driscoll. Um, because he's a rugby genius. He's like George Best or, uh, you know, Peter Canavan. They're they're genius. They're genius in what they do. You 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 could have you could have said to him, "This is how you want we want to play," or "This is what we can do at this breakdown," and immediately he would do it. Yeah. It, but to say that anybody coached Brian O'Driscoll is like saying, "Did somebody coach George Best?" They yeah. might have managed him. They might have been there to help him with his fitness or some of his technique, but to coach him what he is, you know, and he would be one of the best players I would have been associated with. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm no doubt. Um, and the most aggressive. Yeah. Like, I mean, he would have killed you to, to, to win a punch match. A born winner. Yeah. 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 I know. And um, so interesting to hear um, all of those stories. And I've kept you long enough now, but... Look, if, if anyone wants to know about your stories in more detail, the book's brilliant and I really would thoroughly recommend it. It's sort of be useful for, for young players coming up as well to read, to, to get uh, some useful insights and anyone who wants to, to get to know Willie. Yeah, because last week I actually, you know, it was interesting. I was asked to go to, well, which I hope to maybe be on, but more off, you know, um, I went to the, the Sparran Integrated College here to talk to their upper sixth to their lower sixth just about the book but mostly about resilience you know getting up again uh, you know setting a few goals you know, you know setbacks mistakes you know it's not the end of the world you know keep going and yeah it was, it was, it was really nice to, to be able to um, impart that from the book you yeah. know yeah so yeah, no, it's fantastic. And it's not just, you know, you don't have to be a massive rugby fan to enjoy it. That's what we're saying. What Willie's saying, you know, it's not all about rugby. It's uh, about, a li- it's a life story, which is full of, of fascinating things happen to be in the context of a rugby Unfortunately, career. some of them are very funny as well, which is good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, there's some laugh out loud bits in it as well. And, uh, no, I just want to say thanks so much. It's an honour to, yeah, to speak uh, to you. Thank you very much. It's funny, we, we, you know, we, we are... 
our, 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 our journey's past, you know, when you were on the Sullivan, my goodness. That's it right. Makes me feel very old. I know, it made me feel old as well. And I was thinking it was 13 years ago now, but uh, yeah, no, it was great to, to sit down and have a proper chat with you. And um, no, as I say, real, real honour, and I'm sure people will love listening to that. Thanks very much. Thank you. You're a star, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, Willie.